please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. A Christian in America, it can't go too long without a reminder that the world is here, it has an agenda, and it's going to do whatever it can to have its way. I could read you headline after headline and story after story, but I don't need to do that. You see it yourself many times every day. Let me just read you a somewhat lengthy quote from John MacArthur. He says, The United States essentially is now a pagan nation. After being blessed with some 150 years of strong Christian biblical influence, our country has been rapidly declining. Millions of Americans still attend church regularly, and many more consider themselves to be Christians. According to polls, most Americans claim to believe in God, but practical atheism and moral relativism have dominated our society for many decades. For the most part, the few vestiges of Christianity still reflected in our culture are weak and compromising. Through America's leaders, its legislative bodies, and its courts, it has adopted not simply a non-Christian, but a distinctively anti-Christian stance and agenda. The many biblical tenets and standards that once were part of the fabric of our country and that provided the undeniable cultural benefits of morality are now gone. Whatever its form or practical benefits may have been, cultural Christianity is dead. Self-expression, moral freedom, materialism, and hedonism are the prevailing gods. End quote. Well, can you guess when he wrote that? Was it last week? Was it last year? Was it maybe in the last few years after a certain Supreme Court uh, judgments or certain laws being passed in Congress? Now, it's in his Titus commentary from 1996. And that commentary came from sermons that were delivered in 1993. Now, not all of you even remember 1993. You weren't alive then. But I was. I was even young then, if you can believe such a thing. And it's as if the world in the 30 years since has said, you ain't seen nothing yet. We can decry the decline 30 years ago, but how much more have we seen in recent years? Of course, the world has always been fighting against God, and God's ministers have always spoken against the world and, and its decline and how much it rebels against God. But there seems to be an increasing velocity in recent years in our society's rush away from God and his word and an increasing hostility to those who believe, follow, and proclaim God's word. And so it's natural for us as Christians who want to be faithfully uh, biblical in our, our speech, our actions, how do we respond to this? One temptation is to fear. For now, this hostility is mostly words, but we could worry that standing up for God's truth could cost us our job, our freedoms, and possibly our lives. Another temptation is to flight. Tempted to fear, tempted to flight. That is, get off the grid. Don't let them find you. Set up your own community somewhere. Even some Christians have said we should go to another country and kind of make that our, our, our Christian, um, our Christian uh, getaway, much like the pilgrims did all those years ago, moving from uh, Europe to the New World. So we have a temptation to fear, to flight. There's another temptation, and that is to fight. And that is not in the Ephesians 6 sense, as Tom spoke about recently, of putting on the full armor of God and standing firm against the schemes of the devil. But I'm speaking of a temptation to fight the Lord's battle with the enemy's weapons. Weapons like anger, bitterness, contempt, cursing, hatred, striking back, returning evil for evil. And it's sad to say that some Christians response to the hostility from the world is to respond with hostility of their own. I've often been grieved to see unfair, unkind, untruthful, impure, even abusive comments on social media, and then see the writer has in their biography the word Christian, or maybe there's a little cross, or they have their favorite Bible verse, or a little thing that says, only a sinner saved by grace. But beyond that, I've also been grieved to see some of the same sentiments in myself. Now, maybe I have enough self-control not to put them on Facebook or Twitter for the world to see, but these thoughts might come onto my lips, and they are definitely in my heart. 
this hostility, this reaction against those who would be hostile to me. Well, the Apostle Paul has a remedy for this. That is, this hostility we might be tempted to return upon the heads of those who are hostile to us. And he teaches us how we ought to live as Christians in a hostile world here in Titus chapter 3. Let me read verses 1 to 8. We only get through verses 1 and 2 this morning, but this will set the stage. Titus 3 verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Before we look at the text itself, let's just look at some background. Who is Titus the man? This man, Titus, that Paul is writing to in this little letter. Titus himself is not mentioned in Acts, but he was probably converted under Paul's ministry. If we look at verse 4, Paul speaks of Titus, my true child, in a common faith. So when he talks about his child, he's talking about those who have generally become Christians under his teaching, under his ministry. Look back at Galatians chapter 2. While Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, we do see him in several of Paul's epistles. Galatians 2, starting in verse 1, remember here in Galatians, Paul is defending his apostleship against those who are preaching a false gospel. And he says in Galatians 2, verse 1, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. There's our friend Titus. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now this is important because... These false teachers were saying, among other things, that you had to become a Jew. Men had to be circumcised to become Christians. Now, it was a case that Timothy, who was half-Jewish, had a Jewish mother, was circumcised. But Titus, who was a Greek, a Gentile of some kind, was not compelled to be circumcised. And Paul was taking a firm stand here. A person who is a Gentile who becomes a Christian does not need to become a Jew to do so. So Titus was part of this important discussion, this council in Jerusalem we see in the the book of Acts. Titus was there, at least part of that that discussion, and he was critical to, to show that you did not need to follow the law to be saved. Titus also, besides this time in Galatians 2, was a trusted companion of Paul. The books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians have a space between them. You might know this. In between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul wrote what's often called his severe letter. A severe letter he wrote to them. There was a, a split between them. The, the Corinthians were believing some slanderous things about Paul, and Paul did not want to come back at this time. He wanted to have them repent before he came back. And so he wrote them this severe letter. And it's possible that Titus took this letter to the Corinthians, this letter that's in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's not in our scriptures. But at least Titus was sent to see how the letter was received. Paul, remember in those days, didn't have cell phones, couldn't send emails. You had a a letter to somebody who was far away. You might give it to a friend to take to them. And you don't know how that was received. So Paul writes this letter to them, uh, taking the task for their sin. And he doesn't know, have they received it well? Have they repented or have they rejected me? Have they rejected Christ? He just doesn't know. So he sends Titus 
to see how that letter was received. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it mentions here, Paul says, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was me to open uh, was open for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to, on to Macedonia. So Paul is trying to meet Titus at Troas. Titus goes to Corinth, gives him a letter, and he has some news from Corinth. He's supposed to meet him at Troas, perhaps. Paul can't find him. And again, Paul doesn't have a, a tracker on his phone. He doesn't know how to find uh, Titus. So he's wondering, how has this letter worked out? He's concerned. In fact, he's so concerned, even though he has work to do in Troas, he has a gospel opportunity in Troas, he has no rest for, for his spirit because he's so concerned about the Corinthian church. He can't find Titus, so he goes to Macedonia and looks for for Titus. Finally, and we can look at chapter 7 of Second Corinthians, he finds Titus and his prayers have been answered. Verse Five of Second Corinthians seven. Remember, Paul was looking for Titus. Went to Troas, couldn't find him. He goes to Macedonia, and verse five says, "For when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within." Verse six says, "But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus." And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul has good news. He finally meets Titus, and Titus says, Paul, they received your letter, and they received it in the proper spirit. They they were mourning over their sin, and they still love you. They still have a longing for you. You have a zeal. They have a zeal for you. And so Paul rejoices in the coming of Titus in this reunion. Look at verse 13. We see Titus' attitude towards the Corinthian church. Paul says, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if I, in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth." His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. So Paul sends a letter by Titus, the severe letter. They respond, it says, in fear and trembling. They obeyed Paul and and had a, a righteous repentance. And Paul was refreshed by them. His affection abounds toward them. So Titus had a special love, a special connection to the Corinthian church. And of course, a special connection with Paul when Paul needed somebody to take this letter, this harsh letter, this difficult letter, and didn't know how it was going to be received, he sent this young man, Titus, in his place. Looked at the next chapter. Titus appears again. It says we, uh, Paul here is talking about this a gift that he wants the Corinthians to give the, the churches of the church in Jerusalem. He's gathering money from churches all over this area. And because the, the church in Jerusalem is so poor. And it says, We urge Titus, verse 6, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Titus was sent to receive their offering, this pledge they had made, and he's going to get that money. And then it says here, uh, verse 16, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for not, he not only accepted our appeal, that is to go to, to be with you, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So Paul sends Titus, go to Corinth, to Corinth, get the money they promised, and bring it to me. And then I will take it down to Jerusalem. And then one last comment about Titus in Second Corinthians 8, verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you, as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. So, again, Titus was a, a, a beloved partner, fellow worker, as Timothy was, as Luke was. He was important to Paul's ministry, and he used him for, for key uh, elements of Paul's ministry among these, these various churches. We also see from the book of Titus, let's go back to Titus, 
later on in verse 12 of chapter 3, we know that Titus was not just uh, a good uh, sort of ministry machine, but he himself was personally important to Paul, beloved by Paul, dear to Paul. Verse 12 says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, again, he's speaking to Titus, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So Paul is going to Nicopolis. He wants Titus to be there with him. Yes, Titus, uh, we'll look at this in a moment, but you have work to do in Crete, but please come to Nicopolis, spend time with me because I miss you. I want to spend time with you and see how you're doing. The last we hear of Titus is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It says that, this is kind of a, a sad verse, not for Titus' sake, but because of Demas. It says, Demas has loved this present world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So Titus had been with Paul in Rome, but for whatever reason, presumably for ministry, he had gone to Dalmatia. And that is current-day Croatia. It's across the sea east of Italy. And yes, Dalmatia is where the spotted fire dogs come from. That They get that name honestly. They're from that part of Croatia. So Titus here, and Paul's last moments on this earth, Titus, for ministry reasons, again, probably, is not with Paul, but is not too far away across the water in Dalmatia. So that's Titus the man, a very important young man in Paul's life, a key part of his ministry in many places, especially important places like Corinth and Crete. Now, that's Titus the man. What about Titus the letter? This letter is one of the three pastoral epistles, along with First and Second Timothy and Titus, written to individual young men who were planting churches or growing churches. And what's the reason for this letter? Is he just saying hello? Well, look at verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, so Paul was there and he left Titus in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Crete is an important island island in the Mediterranean. I think you know it. Southeast of Greece, it's long and narrow, about 160 miles long and about 30 miles across its widest point. And we don't know how many churches were there. We don't get a, a real good idea from the book of Acts or other places, but it could have been quite a few. It's a, a large island, a long island, and it could be many churches in these cities in Crete. And so this would be quite a job for Titus to go from place to place, from city to city, and find elders in this in this island to to have oversight over these churches. It's vital, isn't it? It's critical to have good elders in, the, in these churches, especially young churches. You need a good leadership to help them grow in grace. And beyond this difficulty in itself, Crete is a difficult place to minister. Look at Titus chapter one, verse ten. Paul here says that this is speaking of what things are like in Crete. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. He's been there. He knows it. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may sound, may be sound in the faith. So these people in Crete are rebellious. They're deceptive. They're liars. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This was spoken, Paul here mentions a prophet of their own. There's a man called Epimenides, and he was a Cretan from a few hundred years before this, but the, the Cretan character hadn't changed since about 500 B.C. up until the time of Paul, that Cretans are, are it says here, Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And verse 16 says, some of these people who are are teaching, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So we have liars outside the church. We have deceivers inside the church. Liars all around him, Titus has in Crete. And there are Gentiles who are uh, false teachers. There are Jews who are false teachers. So many things where it might be easier for Titus to say, you know, this this, li- this land, this island is just 
too far gone, give it up. But Paul trusts him to do the job. Verse 15 of Titus 2 says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul would not leave Titus in this place if he didn't think he was up to the job by God's grace. But now the question comes, how is Titus going to work with these young Christians who have only recently been rescued from a pagan culture? Remember, this is these are fairly new churches. Paul may have been here for the first time a few years earlier. These are not long-established churches that have been there for 50 years. These are new churches with new believers from a culture that is very pagan, very uh, it's full of liars, full of beasts, full of gluttons. And we have new Christians over new churches need to be given responsibilities over these churches to to lead them and to guide them as good elders ought to. And so there's a culture here that's hostile to the gospel. And this culture is antithetical to what Christ has called him to be. How is Titus going to do that? Well, Titus is going to do that by reminding them of a few things. First of all, he's going to remind them how to behave. Second, he's going to remind them how they used to behave. And then he's going to remind them how they were saved. And we'll look at the first one today, how they are to behave. How should Christians behave in a hostile world? Let's look at Titus 3, 1 and 2. Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now remember, the description of Cretans earlier. Verse 10 says there's rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. Verse 11 says they're upsetting whole families and they're teaching for sordid gain. They're fleecing the sheep. Verse 12 says they're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 16 says they're hypocrites. They deny God with their deeds. They're detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. So that's the sphere in which uh, Titus is working here. And these people here in Crete need to be reminded, probably Paul has mentioned this before, but they need to be reminded to live in a particular way. One writer says this, in order that all times they may be good citizens and good neighbors. They need to be good citizens and good neighbors. And there's two ways they need to relate to this society around them. First of all, they need to relate to those in authority. They need to relate to those in authority in a particular way. Paul here says, to be subject to rulers to authorities, and to be obedient. Now, as you might guess from the description of Cretans in verse 12 of chapter 1, Cretans were not inclined to be submissive under Rome. They were an unruly bunch. We have an example of the kind of thing that might happen in Titus 2. Paul here is saying, verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The, the things that bond slaves might want to do to be argumentative and to, to pilfer, to steal from their masters would be the kind of character Cretans might have towards the Romans as well, those who are in authority over them. Now Paul here notes that they are to be subject and to be obedient. And those are similar kinds of things, but maybe there's a distinction. Be subject is how you see yourself uh, below somebody else in authority. And being obedient is how you act. So how you see yourself in subjection, also be obedient how you act. Now, we have many commands in the scriptures about how we are to relate to authorities over us, governments over us. First Peter 2, 3, 13 and 14 says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as a one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So we submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, notice here it says submit yourselves. It's, governments can make people submit sometimes, right? The guy with a gun can, can force the guy who doesn't have a gun to do what he wants. But... Peter here says, for God's sake, for God's honor, submit yourself to every human institution, to kings or governors, to those who are in authority. Look at Romans 13. This is an important passage on this topic. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. 
Romans 13, 1-7, Paul says, Every person is to be subject in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, this is kind of surprising coming from Paul, because the Romans weren't known for their great godliness, right? If you've ever read a, a book about Roman emperors, Roman governors, and, the, and on the whole, they're not really a, a good group of guys. <clears throat> very pagan, very evil, very wicked. And yet God says that they are established by God. And Paul's message here in Romans 13 is that if you are not subject to the authorities over us, you are not being subject to whom? To God. So rebellion against a human authority is rebellion against God. Now this idea of being obedient doesn't sit very well with Americans. I'll confess that myself. I'll be obedient when I want to. Right? That's kind of the way that we like to, to do things. But if we only obey the laws we like, who's the law? We are. Who's the judge? We are. So if we find ourselves only doing what we want to do, only following the laws we want to follow, we are not really being in subjection to the authorities. We ourselves are the authority. Now, a good test of our submissive spirit here is how we react to laws we don't like. Do we just disregard and disobey them? Do we grumble and complain but do it anyway? Or do we obey and thank God for the government we have, even though it might not be our favorite thing to have so much money taken out of our paycheck week after week, or see them doing things that we, we really we, we can identify as evil. Another test for us is, are we only obedient because we don't want to get in trouble, or are we obedient because we're submissive to God? Are we only being careful with our driving because we're not sure if there's a police officer watching us, or is it because we want to do things for the sake of God? Paul reminds us here and elsewhere, we need to be to submit and be obedient freely from the heart, not because it's demanded of us or because we're going to get in trouble, but because God is the authority over us and we submit to these governmental authorities for his sake. Now, there are lots of issues we could get into right now. We could think of an issue like taxes. You might say, well, we shouldn't pay taxes because the money may be used for evil things. And we could talk for hours about the many ways our government at all levels misuses tax money for wicked purposes. But it was the same way in Paul's time as well. And we just saw from Romans 13, 6 and 7, that we are to pay our taxes. And note that the one who gives this command, Paul here, to be subject and to obey authorities was himself mistreated many times by Roman and Jewish authorities. You think that the the state or or federal or local government has been kind of oppressive in the way they treated you as a Christian? Think about Paul, thrown in jail and beaten and so many times mistreated by those who were in authority over him. And yet he can still say, be submissive, <clears throat> be obedient, and <clears throat> pay your taxes. <clears throat> Jesus himself paid the temple tax to support the very ones who would demand his execution. And Jesus told people to pay taxes to Caesar to support the government that would abuse him and hang him on the cross. And so if Jesus paid his taxes, we must do the same. Now, there are exceptions, of course, to this obedience, to the submissiveness to those who are in authority over us. When they command what is sinful, we, we must do what God says. Look at Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. Verse 17, this is shortly after the re- resurrection and ascension. And Peter 
and John and the other apostles are preaching. Look at verse 17 of Acts 4. This is the, the council speaking among themselves. How are we going to speak against these men? Because there are people coming to Christ. We don't like this. So they say, the council, um, verse 17 says, so that it will not spread, that is the gospel, any further among the people, let us warn them, that is the apostles, to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when the council had summoned them, that is uh, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to judge, or to, to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Chapter 5, similar situation. Chapter 5, verse 27. When they had brought them, that is again, uh, uh, Peter and John, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There's a, a good thing to remember there. We, we must obey God rather than men. So some, sometimes a, an authority over us will say, you must do this. And we say, God's law says this, and you're telling me I need to go against God's law. I must obey God rather than men. But there are other exceptions we could note in America besides this uh, a command from a, an authority that we must break God's law. We do, in America, have rights, and we aren't subjects like others are in this world. We can vote out authorities we don't like. We can have other recourses like public forums and courts. Uh, we can have uh, try to get laws passed that would be righteous. We can even use social media to try to affect change. And beyond that, authorities in the United States have limits to their authority. A president is not president over me as a king is king over somebody, say, in England, for example. The president's authority does not extend to every area of my life or our lives. We have rights guaranteed by the Constitution and other laws. So, for example, our freedoms of speech and religion may not be abridged. Uh, If a policeman comes to my home and says, hey, let me come inside and look around a bit. We have every right to say, no, unless you have a warrant, you can't come into my home. Paul himself used his Roman citizenship to his own benefit. We're in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 22. Acts 22. Verses 25-29. Paul here has been arrested. And there's a commander... They want, it says verse 24, they want to examine Paul by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretch him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? This is against the law. A a Roman had a right to a, a trial. If they're not condemned, they can't be scourged. When the centurion heard this, verse 26, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with this large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And when the commander also was afraid when he found out he was a Roman, and because he had put him in chains. So this commander had done something he should not do to a Roman citizen. And Paul had a right to, to, to demand this man not scourge him and treat him in this way, because he had rights as a Roman citizen. Look at Acts 25, another situation where Paul was going to be treated unjustly. Acts 25, Paul here is on trial, and he says, verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die, But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. When Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So Paul knew that if he was handed over to the Jews, he would be dead. 
and he had a right as a Roman citizen to, to appeal to Caesar. He did so, and he was able to go to, to, to speak and have a trial before Caesar, as far as we know. We, we don't know for sure, because it doesn't happen in the book of Acts, but we expect that he was before Caesar, and at that point was let go. <clears throat> so Paul, as a Roman citizen, had rights. And so he was able to, to make reference to those rights, to use those rights to get out of some sticky situations. But interestingly, the only sinful act I know of of Paul after his conversion was in regards to showing contempt for a leader. Look at Acts 23. Acts 23, verses 1 to 5. Paul, looking intently at the council, this is the Sanhedrin, the ones who are going to judge him, or try to judge him. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the order of the, of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There he's quoting the book of Exodus. So did Ananias, as high priest, by saying Paul ought to be struck, was he violating the law? He was. Did Paul have a right not to be struck in this manner? He did. But did Paul have a right to react in this way to this high priest, this ungodly high priest? No. And he had the the, the humility to to repent and and say he shouldn't have done that. He was not aware that he was the high priest. It is written, "You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people." So Paul was struck sinfully, but he also responded sinfully. And so he repented of that. And it is in this sort of sphere of of being subject and obedient to those who have authority over you. He could exercise his right. He could have said to the high priest, you shouldn't have had me struck like that. That was against your law. But to, to speak out in this way, to speak evil of this this ungodly man was was wrong for Paul to do. So just to summarize this point about being in submission and being obedient to authorities, as Americans, we can disobey orders that go against American law because those orders are negated by the higher law. If somebody tries to break the law as an authority, they're not allowed to do that. And so we can say, you may not break that law. You can't come into my house without a warrant, As again, as an example. But even more importantly, as Christians, we can and we must disobey orders that go against God's law because those laws are negated by the highest law, by God's law. No man can require that we disobey God's law. Now, that might mean fines, might mean jail, even death, as it has for many Christians throughout history and even does now for our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world. They are resisting authority and they are being killed for it. But they must obey God rather than men. But otherwise, outside of these areas, we need to submit ourselves to the authorities over us and be obedient, even when it's difficult, obnoxious, or harmful to our pocketbook. Now, before we go on from this point, one thing I want to mention is that we owe to authorities something else besides submission and obedience, and that is prayer. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's one reason why we try to often hear in, in this service, pray for those who have authority over us. And we, we may not like them very much, we may not like what they do, but we are commanded to pray for them. So that is how we relate to those who have authority over us. Paul here, back to Titus chapter 3, says how we ought to relate to everyone. So authority is now to everyone. And he says here, at the end of verse 1, that we are to be ready for every good deed, and then to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We are to be ready for every good deed. That is, we are to be prepared. Like a, a soldier might prepare himself by training and equipping himself for battle. A lot of you are in the army now, or have been in the army. Uh, do they just say, okay, we're going, we're going to... To, uh, to war now and, and uh, just grab a rifle and just somehow get onto the plane and, and go. 
Uh, they, they train for years and years ahead of time. You're, you're not just, you're not just gonna go fight somebody. You have to be trained to, you have to be ready to, to do what you're called to do as a soldier. We also need to be ready for every good deed in a similar way. We are to be ready morally. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that is from previously stated sins, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So if you are holy in your life, you will be prepared for every good work. We are also to be ready biblically. Be ready biblically. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. You know this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you want to be a man of God, like Elisha was, like Elijah was, as Brett talked about this morning, you want to be prepared, complete for good work, you can't just stumble out of bed and be ready to, to preach or to minister. You you get to know Scripture and equip yourself beforehand so that you're ready to use the Scripture and you're equipped for every good work. So we are ready morally, ready biblically. We are also to be ready financially. Second Corinthians 9, 8 says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There's the idea of every good deed again. God gives you money in part so that you can be equipped to to do good deeds, have an abundance for every good deed. And so it's good, if you can, to have money or other things set aside to help when you're made aware of a need. Instead of saying, sorry, I can't help you today because I myself have no money to, to share with you or I have nothing, nothing, nothing I can give you to help meet that need. If we have something set aside, it's good to be able to be ready for that. But we're not just sitting back and waiting. When Paul says be ready for every good deed, we're not sitting in our our chair waiting for something to happen. We actually are actively looking for good deeds to to accomplish. Paul says earlier in Titus 2.14 that we are to be zealous for good deeds. That means we're eager for these good deeds. We're looking for things to do, ready to go, and, and eager to go. We're also to be looking for opportunities and take them. So we have good deeds that we're looking for. Where can I help today? Later in Titus 3.8, Paul says that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. So we're not just looking, uh, waiting for good deeds, not just looking for good deeds, but engaging in good deeds. Paul reminds us in Galatians 6.10, says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And one last thing to mention, as we're being ready for every good deed, is to be persistent, to be encouraged. Paul says in Galatians 6.9, let us not lose heart in doing good, there's the doing good again, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So you might be doing good deed, after good deed, after good deed. And there's there's no fruit. There's no response. There's maybe only hostility to you. And yet we are to persist. Do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So as we look around us, how we relate to this hostile world, Paul says, be ready for every good deed. Next he says, malign no one. Malign no one. Malign is the Greek word, from which we get blasphemy. That is, to revile, to slander, to to insult, to speak evil of. This uh, uh, malign word is one that has a, a bitter and evil intent, often to destroy someone's reputation. You just want to take them down. You might say you might want to cancel them. Jesus himself was one who did not malign Listen to First Peter 2.23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Remember that Paul reviled in return. But while suffering, Jesus uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So when the world reviles us, while the world persecutes us, while the world threatens us, we do not revile in return. We don't utter threats against them but we keep entrusting ourselves to God who is a righteous judge. Maybe God isn't going to do what I want right now in judging this person, but he will judge ultimately, finally, and he will have the victory, and I will have victory through him. 
And I can be patient, even as Jesus was, as he was led to the cross. So we are to malign no one. Don't revile, don't slander, don't insult. But instead, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. This word peaceable here uh, means to be not contentious. Uh, If you have a King James, it says, be no brawlers. Funny, be no brawlers. You're not the kind of person who strikes out with your fists or with your tongue. You're not looking for a fight, but you're peaceable. You're not contentious. And Paul says you are to be gentle, kind, tolerant, considerate, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. Even if you don't think they deserve it, be gentle. And then he says, showing every consideration for all men. Or the ESV translates it this way. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's say, be a gentleman or be a lady in that sense. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And this consideration can refer to humility or meekness or gentleness. You're looking for ways to show kindness, goodness, gentleness, consideration, courtesy to people. And this can be and should be granted to all sorts of people, even those caught in sin. Listen to Galatians 6.1. Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The temptation, when we see a, a brother in sin, is to... Who's talking about whack-a-moles recently? I've talked about it before as an illustration. Bop. you got your, your, your big old mallet. Hit him on the head. Stop it. Don't do that. Uh, Now, people do need rebuke sometimes, but we also want to do it in a spirit of gentleness. We're not trying to judge them, to to beat them down, to make them feel bad about themselves. What we're trying to do when somebody is caught in a sin is to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Bring them back into the fold and and lovingly uh, confront them with their sin, but gently lead them to Christ. And looking to ourselves so that we will not be tempted. We ourselves can be tempted by the same sins they are. We can also show consideration to those who are wrong and oppose us. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, uh, I can't think of anybody who perhaps had more resistance other than Christ, uh, than the Apostle Paul, Paul went from place to place over, over year over year over year and had so many people resisting him and, and abusing him, speaking ill of him and, and beating him, throwing him in jail. So if anybody you might think had a right to be bitter and angry and just fed up with the whole thing, it might be the Apostle Paul. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Was Paul wronged? Very often he was. And yet he, he told Timothy to be patient. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. If people oppose us, and we fight back with insults, with bitterness, with evil intent, are we going to lead them to repentance? What's the likelihood if somebody sees uh, an evil attitude in us that they're going to want to repent and follow the God that we claim we're following? But if we gently correct them, then they're going to see the love of God in us, the kindness of God in us, and they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Back to Paul's words in Titus. He says, showing every consideration for all men. Is there a lot of wiggle room in that verse? It doesn't say, be nice to the ones who are nice to you. He says, show every consideration for all men. So for everybody and in every situation, show consideration, humility, meekness, kindness to these people who may be trying to malign you, trying to hurt you, trying to... uh, to slander you, you show every consideration for all men. So we see in, in these verses, how do we respond 
But when the world is at war with the church, we are to be peaceable. When the world is harsh and brutal, like the evil beasts in Crete, we are to be gentle. And when the world is proud and rude, we are to be humble and courteous. Now I have a lot more notes here. And as I put this to bed last night, and I was looking at it again this morning and asked Joan to look at it, I said, this, this is too long, isn't it? Yeah, she agreed. And so we came to an agreement that we'll do a two-parter here. Tom said it was okay. So thank Joan afterwards that I'm going to stop in a couple of minutes because I could, I could go longer, but we'll finish it up, Lord willing, in a, in a couple of weeks when we're back from our trip. But just a few thoughts as we wrap things up. These are things that are not natural, are they? To be submissive, to be uh, peaceable, gentle, maligning nobody, showing every consideration for all men. These are things that we need God's Spirit for. And it is the Spirit of God who does these things in us. We'll see this some next time. But let me just ask yourself, how do you respond to the world that is getting darker and darker and more and more hostile? We can be grieved and righteously angered by actions of those in government. And there are times when we need to speak out against evil in our society, to be critical of those in the church who are teaching things they ought not to teach or doing things they ought not to do. But we must be careful not to let that spill over into hatred and malice. As I said before, we are not to fight the Lord's battles with the world's weapons, with the enemy's weapons. And we all probably have political figures or religious figures or other well-known people I could mention. And I could see your face change and your brow would darken and your mouth might begin to form malignant words that you may or may not be able to hold in. I know there are people like that for me, too. People that I just want to blaspheme because I feel like they deserve it. They are so wicked that they deserve this, these words from me, this malice from me. Maybe it's somebody who's closer to you at, at work, in your neighborhood, in church, God forbid, or in your home. People that just you, you see and you, you want to speak out against them in your heart. You have this malignancy towards them. Well, we've looked this time at how we are to respond to people. Next time we'll look at why. And as we see the why, I think that will help us as we see those around us that may want, we may want to malign, we may want to, to fight against. But why should we not do that? Why should we do what God tells us to in Titus 3? Well, let's just remind ourselves of these final words and then we'll close in prayer. Paul says that we are to be careful to engage in good deeds. He mentions in verse 8, but we are to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words to read because I'll speak for myself. I know that there is a malignancy inside of me that wants to to lash out. And I, I see things that inconvenience me or or bother me, even anger me, even things that are unrighteous by your own holy word. And I, I want to, to lash out and, and stop it. But the temptation is to do it in a way that is ungodly, a way that is malignant, unkind, ungracious. We confess these things to you. We I trust we'll repent of them when they come up. We may think we've put it behind us and then something can set us off so easily. We know this is natural to us to, to behave in this way, but we must not behave that way as Christians, even as Christ did not. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not utter any threats. But let us, like he did, keep entrusting ourselves to you, who judge righteously, that your light would shine more brightly in us, even as the world grows darker around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.